So very excited this morning to get an extra hour in my sermon to preach to you. This is great. My favorite Sunday of the year. It is good to be together. What a fearful thing it would be in life to not believe that there's anybody at the wheel. What a frightening thing. Perhaps even to imagine there to be somebody at the wheel, but to not believe that they're trustworthy. To either believe that they are unjust or highly forgetful. To not be worthy of trust. That's where Israel is in the time of Malachi. They're living as though they do not believe in the faithfulness of God. And so they begin to accuse His justice. And likewise, they begin to accuse His time, which attacks His character. We see in this text this morning, that is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, is that God is just that we can trust the Lord and His timing is always perfect. His timing is always perfect. Now we'll see this morning in our text how the Lord defends Himself. The accusation will be made by Israel. The Lord will respond by speaking of three for this time. Remember about 400 or so years before Christ, maybe a little more. So about 400 years before Christ, he, he speaks of three for Israel future events. He says he's exhausted, he's, how tiresome it is in their assault on his character, how wearisome this is. And he responds, not by engaging in an argument, but by telling him and telling Israel of three for them future events. The sending of Yahweh, he will send a messenger. This messenger that will be a forerunner of the Lord. The second one, right after him, will be the Lord of the covenant. So the forerunner, as we know now on this side of this historical, these historical events, the first fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist, the second fulfilled in the coming of the messenger of the covenant who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the all-powerful one. But the third, for us, yet future, and for Israel, future, that is the second coming of the messenger of the covenant. That is the second coming of Christ. So in their accusation that, God, you are unjust or you're untrustworthy or you're never on time, he responds by affirming these great acts of justice he will take as the Lord is always on time because he's the Lord of all time. He's the Lord over time. and He's worthy of the trust in your life. This morning, the challenge for us is in your context, do you believe that the Lord is just and always on time and therein worthy of your abiding in Him? Worthy of living in submission and surrender to Him? This is the question that every one of us must answer, young or old alike. Do I trust the Lord in His timing and will I entrust Him with my life? That's what Israel has to deal with. So let's walk through each of these three components this morning, if you would, as we note First and foremost, that the messenger sent by the Lord to prepare the way before the Lord, he was right on time. The messenger sent by the Lord to prepare the way before the Lord, he was right on time. Verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, speaking for this reactive statement for Israel, 
How have we wearied him? The answer, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The people of Israel ask a question, is God comfortable with evil? Does he delight in evil? And God's response is that you have wearied me. You've tired me by your assault on my character again and again and again. You weary me. Now, point of theology, we want to be sure and remember, this is this big word anthropomorphism. It's putting truth of God in human language for us to understand. God cannot be wearied as we are wearied. God does not diminish in his attributes. He doesn't get tired or sleepier or sleepier. He doesn't get hungry or he's the the perfect total of his attributes. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, good and just and faithful, the totality of these things. He doesn't exhaust. So when Scripture says of, of Israel's doubting and questioning and accusations of the Lord's timing, when in the Scriptures teach us that right here, what wearisome this is for me, it's giving us understanding that God is good and just and in His justice, not only does he not appreciate their lack of faith in his timing and in his justice, but he is insulted by it because he's good and just. Which is good for us. It gives us hope that he simply doesn't tolerate this. Let me give you an example. If you've ever been on a car ride, a, a road trip for some time, and you had little kids in the back, and what do they begin to famously ask? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then, it's kind of cute. It's kind of, oh, no, we're not there yet. And then by the 15th question, are we there yet? Now it's personal. Because no longer are they really asking, are we there? What their question's really insinuating is that we've done something wrong. As though we should have been there far earlier. We took a wrong turn or something. Are we, are we lost? Like, are we there yet? Like, it's becoming accusatory. But that's what Israel's doing to the Lord. Is your timing ever going to work out? Are you going to allow the unjust to flourish here? They're accusing the Lord in the same way. That's what happens in our hearts as our hearts begin to grow hard against the Lord. We need to excuse ourselves so we turn it on the Lord. It's like somebody caught in sin and reversing it on the other. Israel's living largely unjustly. We've already seen the corruption of the priests. We've seen the corruption of so many of their, their men and, and redefining and poisoning marriage and divorcing their wives and their youth. We've seen these abuses, and what do they accuse the Lord of? Of being unjust. Of His faithlessness. The Lord says, what wearisome this is. This wearies me. And how does the Lord respond? Look what He says. Behold, I send my messenger. The Lord is a sending God, and He is always on time. This word send is interesting. It's used 800 times in the Scriptures. I didn't count them. That's what my Bible software said, so we're going to trust that. <laughs> Behold, I send. The Lord is a sending God. Now, that word has a large, large range of meaning. Context, of course, helps us to determine meaning. And immediately, very close to this, look over in Malachi 2.16. Just real close. Look at Malachi 2.16. We see the same verb used. Except in this case, it's how Israel has used this word sending. We'll see this beautiful contrast in how the Lord sends. 
When Israel sins, it's, a, it's usually a destructive component. When they originate descending, bad things tend to happen. When, and and the, the patriarchs, as they begin to take things under their own wings and act without consulting the Lord, difficult, bad things happen consistently. Look at Malachi 2.16. It says, for the man who does not love his wife, but sends her away or divorces her, as ESV says. That's, that's literally to send her away. So Israel's sending away leads to, to, to destructing the things that are good. But God's sending away will be just and good. God will send the forerunner. He will send the messenger that will come before the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. God's sending is healing and restorative, and he's always on time. But Israel is sending, and our sending, what we act outside the way of the Lord, is usually destructive. When we take things in our own hands, we act destructively, don't we? That's what Israel's doing. Their sending destroys the good gifts of the Lord. But God's sending in great love, even though he's wearied by their lack of faith and their faithlessness, is one of healing and justice. And he's always right on time. What will he do? Behold, I will send my messenger. This one that will prepare the way. The way is the habit, the lifestyle that God desires. It's consistent with Torah, teaching, the way of life. For the Hebrew to live according in faithfulness to the God who loves them, Yahweh, who chose them with a saving love. Jacob, I loved the way of life. The law, the word, was, was a way of life. The way that they were to live. What will this messenger do? He will come preparing the way. Now we say the way and immediately as students of the New Testament, what do we think of? Jesus is the way. And just as we hear that regularly and think, well, he's the way I should go, for the good Hebrew, they would hear that and say, whoa, Jesus is like, Jesus is the way, he's the Torah, he's the sole teaching of what all this is about, to truly love God and neighbor, is this Jesus? He is the way. The messenger of the covenant that the Lord would send, that is John the Baptist, would prepare the way. And, it, and when Israel accuses God of injustice, of his timing being off, what does that great messenger, this John the Baptist, do? What, what message is he preaching in Matthew chapter 3? A message of what? Repentance. Repentance. Changing of heart and mind that leads to a change of action, a changing of allegiance. So Israel goes and he goes to Israel. John the Baptist goes to Israel and he calls them to repentance. And they partake in a baptism of repentance. This outward proclamation of a softening, that they pray is reflecting a softening of their hearts as they do what? As they look forward to the messenger of the covenant, the second aspect of hope. God is always on time. He was right on time with John the Baptist and he's right on time with the messenger of the covenant who is Jesus. Look, secondly, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, was right on time in his first coming. Just as John the Baptist would be right on time, the messenger sent by the Lord to prepare the way before the Lord was right on time, so too the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, was right on time in his first coming. In his first coming. Now for us, now we look and we can we can look at a text like this in Malachi and what we'll see here actually in a couple weeks as well. And we can say, of course, that's his first coming there and, and this is his, his second coming. This will come later. 
But for Israel, this was all future. They, they knew, okay, he was going to be this messenger of the covenant. We know in Luke 22, it's a covenant in his blood. We're made acceptable, we're forgiven in Christ by the work of Christ alone. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we look at the text and we say, oh yeah, that's his first coming and this is going to be his second coming. This didn't happen yet, so it's going to be in his second coming. But they looked at texts that spoke about him coming on the clouds. And then they looked at texts that say he would be born from Bethlehem. And they looked at all these different texts and they think, well, how is all this going to work together? This first coming would be right on time. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. The Lord, the messenger of the covenant was, covenant, was right on time in his first coming. Picking up halfway through chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord, this word Lord Adonai. We've spoken about this before. But Yahweh, the I am, the personal name of the Lord. Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is Adonai. This is Lord, powerful one. This could be used in a large sense of meanings, depending on the context. It could be the, the master, the boss, the king of this area. But the one who's coming, the messenger of the covenant, he's not coming to the temple, he's coming to his temple. This is the Joshua 3, Lord of all the earth, who's coming to his holy temple. In his first coming, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. The messenger of the covenant. We speak about God a lot, and it's always a good time to clarify. We talk about the Trinity and the greatness that God is so good and kind to us. Likewise, as we talk about the first and second coming, we're able to look back and see more clearly what the Lord did in His first coming and will do in His second coming. But the same is there with the Trinity. We see the triune, three persons all over the place, but we see it more clearly in the New Testament as the Lord has made Himself known. And how incredible is it? That God in His kindness would reveal Himself to us in His Word. He would tell us who He is. He would show us who He is. And God is a Trinity, the triune God. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Not Father and Son in the sense like we would think of a human Father and Son. That the Father made the Son. But one in essence, three in persons. The Son did not have a beginning. He's eternal. The Son is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, existing eternally in relation one to another, and the Spirit likewise. Theologians call this the spirating, this proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Spirit, He's not a force, He's a person. The Father, Son, and Spirit, triune in community in relation for all eternity. Beautiful, true, beauty and that before the foundations of the world the father would in love send his son his only begotten his one-of-a-kind son that he would come and he would fulfill all the demands of the law that the son would come and he would take on flesh and dwell among us so jesus is the eternal son who's taken on the full nature of a man jesus then has 
two natures, fully God and fully man, never ceasing to be God, that's impossible. But Jesus, fully God, fully man, fulfilling all the prophecies of Scripture, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom Israel delighted in, he would come among them and would live a sinless life like none of us have lived in this room or outside of this room. While we were yet sinners, Christ would come and He would lay His life down willingly on the cross, fulfilling the will of the Father. How incredible is the love of God for those in sin like you and me? How incredible is the Word, the one to whom you delight Israel. And Israel, when he would come the first time, they would not delight in him in large, would they? When he comes again, they will. But the eternal Son would take on flesh, fully God, fully man, would be crucified, divinity not dying, that's impossible. But as humanity, as a man, he would die, be crucified, buried, Suffering, raise again, defeating death. The God of all time would subject himself to death, even death on a cross. The humiliation of beatings and stripped naked and the mockery by his creation. He defeated death, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he will come again just as assured as he did the first time. How great is our God! How just and kind is our God. How on time is our God. He's worthy of your trust. And this, this is what is fleshed out for Israel that would build their hope and their confidence in the kindness and the timing of the Lord. Jesus is the eternal Son, takes on the full nature of man. That's why in John 17, 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not simply a man. He's not a created being. He's not an angel as Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons might teach. He is the eternal begotten Son, a one of a kind. One God eternally existing in three persons. Not parts of God, fully God. How great is our God? How great is our God? In Jesus Christ, you can know Him. This is the God to whom they delight, and it's the God to whom Israel accuses of being unjust. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your life. Jesus came to his temple the first time. He came dedicated as a baby. He came for festivals. He came the last week of his life on this earth before his passion. When he comes again, he will come and he will reign. The Lord of hosts spoke of his first coming that was yet future to Malachi and the post-exile people. When I say post-exile, it means Israel was in the land where they were supposed to be, and in their disobedience to God, they were taken out of the land, and then a remnant had returned to the land. This is post-exile time. For them, it was yet future. For us, we look to both of those. And if you're like me, I'm a pretty judgmental guy. Didn't know if you'd... 
Some of you are like, he is. This guy's terrible. How are we letting him preach right now? But I can make the mistake, being honest with you, I can make the mistake, when I was, especially when I was younger, but still, when I would first read through the Bible and I'd read the Old Testament stories, I would read it with like an annoyance toward Israel. I would read it with a, come on, are you serious right now? Y'all still don't believe? Why are you still doing, what are you doing? And for this text, we can look and say, you all were, he fulfilled the scriptures, he brought you back into the land. This incredible edict, you still don't believe, look what, you, look what God's doing in your lives. You seriously still don't, you're still doing all this stuff you're not supposed to be doing? And I think if they could look forward to us and speak to us today, I think Israel would be right to look at us and say, wait a minute, you know who the messenger is before the Lord? You know who the messenger of the Lord is? You know who he is and you still struggle to believe? Wait, you're telling me you know who the messenger of the covenant is? Jesus and God has shown himself? And you still don't believe? And you're telling me the Holy Spirit, he the person of the Holy Spirit indwells you? At your conversion? And the Holy Spirit, he lives in you as a temple, the temple of God? And you still wrestle with believing and trusting in his justice and kindness? But if we were to unite voices with Israel, we would be on the same chorus on this third portion. Because for Israel, the second coming of Christ was yet future. And for us today, the second coming of Christ is yet future. We notice thirdly that the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, will be right on time in his second coming. What a message of hope. What a message of hope. Two points on this. First, that his second coming will beautifully refine his people for his pleasure. His second coming will beautifully refine his people for his pleasure. Jacob, I loved, echoed through the book. So let's read again. We'll pick it up the same spot in verse 1 because I think that was a double fulfillment portion of his first and second coming. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read it through verse 4. Look at this. This is good. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, these priests that were doing things they ought not to do. And he will refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord rather than dung-covered offerings we saw in previous verses. Then the offering of Judah, the state in Jerusalem, the, this holy city of God, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Israel could look around and see clearly things were not the way that they ought to be. But in the Lord's second coming, they will be as they ought to be. That is why I use the word beauty. Beauty is that functioning and being as it was designed to be. Beauty strikes you, and people who claim not to believe in God, that this world is a giant cosmic accident, they have no logic or reason to explain beauty, for there's no ultimate design or function and purpose eternal. When you see a sunset, you're struck beautiful. When you see a musician in their craft for singing, you're, you're struck to admire the beauty. 
even if you have very little appreciation for music, you see it, it strikes you. When you see an athlete making an incredible swing or play, even if you have very little experience or care about that sport, to see the, this beauty of athleticism performed in the way it ought to be or an instrument played in the way it, it ought, was designed to be, you're struck to say that is beautiful. We don't look at a virus and say it's beautiful. We don't look at, at, at mold and say it's beautiful. We look at things the way they ought to function and create, and we say, that yes, that's beautiful. The Lord's second coming, Israel, will be made beautiful. She will function the way she was called to function. She will be how she was called to be. That is a message of hope and goodness. In a face of massive suffering and consequence that was taking place 400 years before Christ, yes, He is good, yes, He is just, and yes, He is always on time. What a gift that God gives us. In the Lord's second coming, He will function as a refiner's fire, not destroying, but purifying it. When we wash our clothes, we don't wash them hoping they'll get destroyed. I just bought this shirt. None of you complimented me on it. I'm a little insulted. But one of the reasons I wanted to wear it today is because whenever I try to do laundry, it usually ends up like three inches shorter than it was supposed to be on the, on the first run. So I knew I at least have one day I can wear this shirt. But we wash our clothes with soap to restore them the way they ought to be. That's what the Lord will do in His second coming. He will restore Israel to be as she was to be, as believers in Christ Jesus today. In His second coming, we will be restored in the way we ought to be. When we look at our own lives and our hearts and we wage war against sin, we were never meant to be this way. We were meant to be dependent and faithfully abiding in the Lord in all things. As our bodies groan and ache and, and get closer to death, we were not made for that. We will be made truly beautiful. Now listen, in Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're forgiven. And before, the God, we, and before God, we stand righteous, holy before Him in Jesus Christ alone. That's a good thing. The day will come when we will be fully sanctified, which is this theology term, this idea of glorified. We will be in glory before the Lord, functioning and being truly beautiful as we were made to be physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. It's a day that gives us hope, and it's a word that in the Lord's second coming was to give Israel hope as well. How good the Lord is when He comes, He will, in His second coming, He will make us beautiful. And secondly, in verse 5, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. His second coming will bring condemnation against those who do not fear the Lord. There is a profile being flushed out in this text in all of the book of Malachi, all the scripture. There are those who know Yahweh and love the Lord and fear the Lord, and there are those who do not. They live by self-rule. They live by self-faith. They rule their life. They take up their life, and they live as Esau. They live as Babylon. So the same text will evoke in Israel two responses. Just like this morning. Let's just play a game with me this morning. Let's imagine that this whole side of the church, you're not believers in Christ. You came this morning because you had an extra hour to kill, and you're like, I'm going to church today. 
Let's do this. This side of the church is believers in Christ. You've turned from sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ alone. The same sermon, this side, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, you will be warmed, you'll be joy-filled, and you'll desire to persevere in your faith and run after the Lord and be faithful to the Lord who never forgets and who's good and just. This side, if you don't know the Lord, in the same text, the same sermon, you'll feel judged. You'll be filled with fear. Perhaps anger. So too with Israel. There are people who are fearing the Lord and there are people who walk in no fear of the Lord, even in their leadership context. So look what he says in verse 5. He says, Then I will draw near to you. He's speaking to Israel. Judgment beginning with the house of God. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. It's those who do not fear them. So with the same text, we either have comfort or we have concern. Comfort or concern. That's what's coming across with Israel. He gives four different types of sin, and this is an ongoing, this is like a state of a person. And I think these are types, these are examples. The law of God gives us a much larger picture of sin. So I think what these are functioning for us and for Israel in this little text is that it's functioning for them as an awareness of types, of people that do not fear the Lord. So we have sorcerers, adulterers, I summarize it as those who swear falsely and, and those who predatorily abuse on the weak. I want to break those down to a category. Number one, we have no fear of God, that is, they have no fear of God spiritually, that's the sorcerer. The sorcerer has no fear of God spiritually. Stay with me here. What's Israel doing? What's many of the men in Israel doing? They're divorcing their wives of their youth, and they're pursuing likely youthful wives of pagan nations, and they're worshiping their gods, likely partaking in sorcery. They have no fear of God spiritually, aiming to discern the time and the season outside of Yahweh and His Word. No fear of God spiritually. Secondly, no fear of God physically, marked by adulterers, their sexual activity, their abiding outside of the marriage covenant. Just do it. It feels good. That's the desire and the ride, for there's no fear of God and the gifts of God. Number three, relationally. There's no fear of God relationally. I think just like number one and number two, spiritually and physically are connected, I think you can make a connection between number three and number four. Those who swear falsely. The idea is there's people that are of, of equal kind of power as you, equal status, and the person is swearing falsely, they're lying to get an advantage upon those that they're to have a relationship with. So they're breaking those relationships because there's no fear of God, of how God tells us by His Word we're to treat other people, to love them as our neighbor. And then it flips like this. There's predatory abuse of the weak. So just like they're to walk in a fear of God with their relationships, they're to walk in a fear of God when those that are weak among them, those that seemingly have very little to offer, Israel is to walk in a way that lives as though they have a fear of God, caring for them, protecting them. And instead, many in Israel 
are abusing them. They're taking advantage of the weakest. And so we have this list. We have an example of the one in authority who rips off their employee. We have the one in power who takes advantage of the widow. We have the orphaned who are taken advantage of, and we have the sojourner who's taken advantage of. They all have this in common. Again, they seem to have very little to offer. And those in Israel, many in Israel, are being predatory toward them. Now, all of these are condemned in the law. That's why this is important. We should not take this list and say, okay, well, here's our purpose in life. Because all of these are indicators, all of these are lights that come up on the dashboard of a heart that is hard toward God, a heart that will be judged by God. And Israel, then, is to respond by a tenderizing toward the Lord. What we see with John the Baptist, a repentance and a baptism keeping with repentance as they look forward to the Messiah. The application for us as believers is that we would do the same today. We would stand in repentance. We would bow in repentance of our lives and look to the Messiah, look to Jesus, look to the Christ. So all those things are condemned in the law all over the place. But do you remember what one of the jobs of the priest was to do? Was to be teachers of the law, teachers of the way. And they failed to teach them and bless Israel in the way. They edited their teachings. But Israel should have known better still. She was still culpable for what was taking place. Because the law speaks of it all over the place. I won't give you time to write them down. That's a challenge. But I will read them for you. Here's a few of these places where it's condemned in the law. The first five books of Scripture. So we look and we see sorcerers were condemned in Exodus 7 and Deuteronomy 18. Adultery was forbidden in multiple places and in multiple different ways, but Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 in particular. The perjurer, the person who swore falsely, taking advantage for their own gain, Exodus 20, Leviticus 19. And those who prayed on the weak, that's condemned everywhere in the law, all over the place. Let me give you some examples. Exodus 22, Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 10, 14, 16, 24, 26, 27. I got a bingo in the back. Is that what we all over the place? All over the place. This is condemned. Two profiles. No fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. When he says, Messenger of the covenant to whom you delight, those who have no fear of the Lord do not really delight coming of the messenger. You see, they looked around Israel and said, I don't like this. This isn't even as good as it once was in our past. Our leaders are corrupt. Our culture is being ravaged. I don't like this. All of Israel was on the same page in that point. But what we'll see take place is that the Sadducees and Pharisees and religious leaders, they will desire the Messiah the Lord, the ruler of all the earth, his temple. Does Jesus come and he cleanses the temple? His temple? They'll desire the Messiah if they can rule the Messiah. They want a Messiah that they can lead and manipulate. But to truly delight in the Lord is to be led of the Lord. To truly delight in the way of life is to delight in the way of life. To abide in Christ. To trust in Yahweh. To 
faithful to want to walk out His Word in our life faithfully as we rest in Him. In my life, are there areas where I'm desiring to lead the Messiah? To lead the messenger of the covenant. The covenant that would be shed by His blood. The covenant of His blood. And in those places, I ask, Lord, would you ever tenderize my heart? And as a church body, we ask that same way. God, would you tenderize my heart for your will for my life? Would you lead me to be faithful in my words and in my abilities and my giftings and my time? It's your time. I want to be faithful to your way. I believe you're just and you're always on time for you're the God of time. I trust you today. What a message of hope. For a broken people. Can you, can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? Abide in Christ. If you don't know Him, make today the day you come to meet Him. Next steps. Next steps. A little different than usual. I'm giving you some homework. Ephesians 4 and 5. and Roman led in our staff devotion not too long ago an example of this great application of putting off, renewing your mind, and putting on that's how this would function for Israel as well. Israel will be convicted, and they would also be left longing for the coming of the Lord. It should lead to their behavior changing in the present, but it should bolster their hope and their joy that God had not forgotten them. He's faithful. So I, my, my challenge to you is if you this week, at some point, read through Ephesians 4 and 5, and as you read through it, Ask the Spirit of God to convict you if there's things of your old self, because there are in our mind as well, that we are called to wage war against, to put off those things that we keep wanting to put back on from our old self. Put off the old self. And there's some of those adjectives you'll read in there that you identify particularly with. And make a list of these are the things I know I need to have an action plan to put off this week in my life. This is not who I'm called to be. And then renew your mind in the Word. Actively renew your mind. Schedule time to renew your mind and the, and the faithfulness of the Lord by His Word. And then put on Christ. Leave the things that the Lord has called you to be. Look at those lists of what the Lord calls us to be as His children. And abide in those things. Secondly, the chosen nation of Israel as His chosen treasure possession will one day be transformed to delight fully in the messenger of the covenant. But for us as Christians, we also look forward one day to which we will also fully delight in the messenger of the covenant. Yes, in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Yes, in Christ, you're righteous. But a day will come when physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally, all these dynamics, we will fully delight in the Lord. How does that truth meet you right now? He is the God who is always on time. Abide in Him. Would you pray with me before we stand and respond in singing? We believe truly that You are always and ever on time, Lord. That in You we can trust. Your Word speaks often and even here, Lord, of, of a treasured possession that You'll have. And we thank You that in Christ that we're grafted into this. That by faith in Christ You have blessed us. That You've taken us from hearts of stone and You've given us desires to want to know You to rest in you and it's your glory we proclaim we confess our sin 
and we abide and we trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great love for us, this unearned favor that you have shown us. High King of Heaven, would you be our treasure in our life? Would you give us wisdom in all things? Would you shape our lives even more so this week to reflect your glory and your goodness? We take comfort in your word. Help us to put off the old self, to renew our minds, and to put on you in all things. We love you. It's in Jesus' name all God's people said together. Would you stand together as we respond in song?